1: did so much more than make converts they followed jesus's command we call it the great commission in matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 they made disciples they cared about who was saved and they made disciples we've had this discussion before where you know i think it's great to witness to people don't get me wrong that's our job we've been called by jesus to do that i think it's great for to get people to come into the kingdom but they can't be notches on our belt they can't be notches on our belt that said this many people accept the lord
0: what do you do with them then When we look at the early church, we can see many qualities that inspire believers to this day, the boldness, the gifts, and the impact. In today's message, Pastor Dave will be sharing something that the early church was very good at. These believers were really good at creating and growing disciples. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he begins his message, God's model for his church.
1: We've been working on the book of Acts now for a while. We happen to be in Acts 2, and today we're going to do a very, very important verse to the church. We're going to do Acts two forty-two, which is God's model for His church, God's plan for how the church is going to be designed and how the church is going to deal with this huge new band of believers. So you can turn in your Bibles to Acts two 42. I'll read the verse aloud if you will read silently, please. One verse today. Acts 2, 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. For the last, well, for a long time, I was a shop teacher. That was my chosen profession. And for 12 years before I retired, I was the wood shop teacher at Wildwood High School. And I helped many a student make a wood project, believe me. I saw some really beautiful projects, and I saw some not so beautiful projects, you know, it was the old Bill Cosby thing, put two grooves in it and make it an ashtray. But uh, one of the hardest projects the students ever had to make or ever attempted to make was a table or a stool that had four legs. Think about that. The problem was getting the table or stool to sit evenly on a floor. Usually, one of the legs would be too short and, you know, you'd get this, and start to rock. Obviously, if it didn't have all four legs, what would it do? It would fall over and it would collapse. As these students tried to fix these legs, the table continued to rock. And guess what? It got shorter because they would continually to work on the legs and trying to get them straight. And as they would do that, the table kept on getting shorter and shorter. So, but the table needed four legs to stand evenly. You take away one of the legs. And like I said, the table probably could collapse. Legs are not even. You have all kinds of problems. So, too, is God's plan for his church. Just like the table, God's plan consists of basically four essential elements, legs, if you will. These elements are essential to the church, just as the legs are essential to the table. You take one away, and you could have a possible collapse. The four essentials of God's church help build our Christian faith. If one or more is knocked out, the enemy can easily wrestle us into a predicament and eventual defeat. In other words, we need all four to stay at that even balance that the Lord has for us in a church and in our lives as individuals. These, this foundation of the church, if you will, these four essentials are built upon Jesus Christ. Paul says in his book to the Corinthians, his first book to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which he has laid, which is in Christ Jesus. And we know that Jesus, upon Peter's great profession of faith, When Jesus was standing with them on the mountain said, Who do you say I am? When Peter said, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus said, Upon that, I will build my church. In in Matthew 16. Upon that profession of faith, I'm going to build my church. The profession of faith that Jesus was the Christ, Son of the living God. Unfortunately, it's been denoted that he was building his church upon Peter, who made the profession. Why would God build his church on a man? God built his church on himself. Jesus Christ, he is the foundation that has already been laid. He's the chief cornerstone. And if you're a builder, you know when they put the cornerstone in, everything else is lined up to that stone. And he's the chief cornerstone upon which we are built, this church of Jesus Christ. But if you look back at what we covered so we can get a running start to where we're going today, let's look back a little bit as we began Acts 2, the day of Pentecost had come. The men who had gathered in the temple to celebrate the feast that day heard several sounds as the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 believers in the upper room. These sounds got their attention. These sounds made them very curious. I mean, first there was the sound as of a rushing wind. Then there was the sound, they heard the wonderful praises of God spoken in their very own languages by these unlearned Galileans. This made them very, very perplexed. It made them very, very confused to the point where they cried out in Acts 2, verse 12, whatever could this mean? What's going on here? They didn't understand. And we said that they were in the perfect place because they were seeking God. They were in the temple seeking God for the feast day. And boy, were they going to find God. Were they going to find a new relationship with God that was going to be more powerful than I ever thought imaginable? Peter, my man Peter, I love Peter, stands up in the midst, now full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees that opportunity to share the gospel message with them. It's the first time we see the gospel message being shared with someone other than Jesus Christ. He begins to explain to the men what happened. What happened was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He then explains to the men how it happened. It happened by the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gave them the gospel message. He shared with them and laid the gospel message out before them. And then he explained to them why it happened. It happened to save men's souls. This prompted a response. We said that anytime the gospel message is preached, a response is prompted. You are demanded to make a response. You either accept what is given or you reject what is given. There is no middle road, we said. In Acts 2, 37, they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? When you're witnessing to somebody, wouldn't you love for somebody to ask you that question? Well, what do I do? Oh boy, is it this easy, Lord? What do I do? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 38. After Peter's invitation, 3,000 souls accepted the Lord Jesus. Repented, were baptized, their baptism singled, what already happened in their heart. They believed upon Jesus Christ. 3,000 souls, and the church exploded. The new church just exploded. It exploded 25 times. 25 times it exploded because there was only 120 in the upper room, and now they're at 3,000. 25 times These new converts have been called 3,000 spiritual newborns with 3,000 shepherding responsibilities for the apostles. They were babies. And when you have new babies, there's great responsibility and a lot of work. These newborn again believers, these new babies, were 3,000 bundles of joy and 3,000 accidents waiting to happen. The apostles had to manage everything that happened here, and they had to care for them. Were they equipped for this task? And what would they do? Well, they were equipped, all right, because what happened in that upper room that day of Pentecost made all the difference in the world. God's promise was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit came upon them with power. You can read about that in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. The Holy Spirit was now reigning in the lives of these men and women. And I don't think you can consider these people radical. Instead, these early church leaders were simply living the Christian life according to what Jesus taught them to do. They weren't really radicals. We consider radical behavior was nothing more than A sincere attempt to live in obedience. In fact, living that way today, you can be called a radical. You can be called Jesus freak. You can be singled out because of your beliefs. With all the new responsibilities, they had to look to the Holy Spirit. They had to get his guidance. They couldn't do it by themselves. You know, one commentator said, the reign of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles led to some practices that brought forth to all and made the apostles' task possible. They had to rely on the Holy Spirit. They could not do it in their flesh. These 3,000 new converts needed instruction in God's Word. They needed fellowship with other believers, God's people. And if they were to grow and to become effective witnesses, they had to do these things on a daily basis. They had to get involved. They had to know one another. They had to know who they served and why they served this Lord. You know, the early church did more than just make converts. They did so much more than make converts. They followed Jesus' command We call it the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. They made disciples. They cared about who was saved, and they made disciples. We've had this discussion before where, you know, I think it's great to witness to people. Don't get me wrong. That's our job. We've been called by Jesus to do that. I think it's great to get people to come into the kingdom. But they can't be notches on our belt. They can't be notches on our belt that said, this many people accepted the Lord. What do you do with them then? After they accepted the Lord, what do you do with them? Well, thanks a lot, you know. Do you invite them to church? Do you get them to come out? Do you teach them God's word? Do you make them get into fellowship? Do you pray with them? Do you have communion with them? You know, we just can't leave new converts just out there floating on their own and floundering because we have an enemy. And as soon as they accept Christ as their savior, there's someone who's going to be nagging on them. So, Did you really do that? Did it really take effect? I don't know. Your life hasn't changed. You're still you. We need to do things for them. We need to help them come into the kingdom. We need to show them, be their guide. That's what they wanted to do here. These four things, these essentials of the church here that Luke mentions, they not only happened in the early church, but remain a key spiritual growth and maturity in today's modern church as well. We need to look at these four things and make sure that we are accomplishing these four things in our fellowship, in our worship to God, in order to grow by faith, in order to grow spiritually, in order to mature. I'm going to examine these four today to discover these wonderful ingredients that are capable of revolutionizing a ministry. Any fellowship that applies these four essential elements will be radically changed and they will be eternally blessed. Well, let's look at these four that we find in verse 42. But first of all, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? The word doctrine means teaching and it refers to any teaching about Jesus Christ and the Christian life. The apostles' doctrine was and always will be the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. But there were no epistles back then. There were no gospels back then. What did they teach? They taught about Jesus. They taught about Jesus. And how could they teach about Jesus? They just spent three years with him every single day of their lives, last three years. They could teach about Jesus because they were experts on Jesus. They knew Jesus Backwards and forwards, they spent three years with him, watching him. They taught about his love. They taught about his grace. They taught about his mercy. They taught about his ministry. They taught about his Father, God. They taught about Jesus' life on earth, his influence upon others, and much, much more. After all, like I said, they spent three years with him. Three years. They were there for the miracles. They saw all the miracles face to face. Can you imagine a time when Jesus wasn't doing miracles, I can imagine sitting around a fire, what Jesus was doing. They weren't just sitting there thinking, when's the next ball game? Jesus was talking to them. Jesus was ministering to them. Jesus was loving them. I can imagine some of those times around the campfires were probably better than anything that ever happened to some of them. And can you imagine the times when you might have been disgusted or, or dejected as a disciple, and Jesus came up to you and put his arm around you and walked the other way and said, started talking to you? Wow. You don't think these guys knew who Jesus was? Wow. Oh yeah, they knew who Jesus was. They watched him go off and pray every morning. They were eyewitnesses to his life. They were eyewitnesses to his ministry. They were eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection. And the new church would study God's promises together. And they would learn through the Holy Spirit. For where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's word reigns also. These new converts hungered for God's word. And I have to ask you, Christian, do you have a hunger for God's Word? Do you love to devour His Word? I mean, do you love to read it and chew upon it and allow the Holy Spirit just to minister to you as you read God's Word? you hunger for God's Word? It's the backbone of a healthy Christian life. They hunger for God's Word. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter 2.2 says, "...like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that you may grow up in your salvation." It's interesting that Peter would write this because when Peter was being restored by Jesus, after he denied Jesus, what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And here you see Peter and the apostles doing that exact thing, taking the doctrine that they knew, the life of Jesus Christ, and feeding the sheep. The new sheep, the new 3,000 converts were being fed God's Word. I believe that it's a ministry's primary obligation to teach the Word of God. That's why we teach here at Calvary Chapel, line upon line, verse upon verse, so that you will have the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, not missing anything out. When the Spirit reigns, God's people continually devote themselves to the study of God's Word. We must give adherence to this as an essential part of any ministry because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What was considered sin 2,000 years ago, it's still considered sin. And what was acceptable to God 2,000 years ago is still acceptable to God. Nothing has changed in His Word, and we need to make that. We need to take God's Word and we make it, apply it to our lives. We have to apply it. Just because society has changed does not mean God has changed. God has not changed. And we praise Him for that, for still being on the throne. He hasn't abdicated the throne. He is still there. So for this very reason... Every effort should be made to keep distractions at a minimum when the Word of God is being taught. A distraction could cause someone to miss out on the very thing that God wants to explain to them today in their heart. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, The Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I don't want anybody to miss anything that God has to say. I don't want anybody to miss anything that God is preparing to do in their hearts today as you sit before him. In other words, the word of God must have his proper respect. And the word of God must be allowed to do what it wants to do in your lives, which means you need to receive it, accept it, and then apply it. We talked about application a couple of weeks ago. So the first essential of the early church was the apostles' doctrine. Not only was this a huge emphasis on the early church, it should be a huge emphasis on what we do in this church as well, and it is. The second essential is fellowship. And they continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They had fellowship one to another. Now, this was more than just hanging out. This was a lot more than just hanging out. This kind of fellowship did not exist before the Holy Spirit fell. It didn't happen that way. The word for this fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. It's a spiritual fellowship that happens. The root idea here is commonness or commonality. The first mention is right now of this word koinonia is in Acts 2.42, and it's the first time it's mentioned. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it talks about sharing, either with someone or sharing something to someone, or sharing together, like in 2 Corinthians 8.4 or 2 Corinthians 9.13. It means collection or offering or contribution, but not necessarily monetary. There's so many things more we can share with each other than money. There's so many things more that we can share. We can share God's love. We can share prayer. We can share God's hope. We can share God's encouragement. We get to know each other on a personal level. We share in each other's lives. Scripture says, bear each other's burdens. Well, you need to feel comfortable with me if you want to lay a burden on me that I can bear with you. So you got to get to know me, and i got to get to know you. That's fellowship. That happens as the Word of God is preached. After the Apostles' Doctrine is preached, we talk. We have fellowship after church. We drink coffee, and we stand around and talk. And God invariably comes up. Jesus invariably comes up. And we talk about the Lord and how wonderful He's been, been in my life. And all of a sudden, you might need prayer, and boom, prayer breaks out. See, this kind of fellowship didn't exist until the Holy Spirit came. The Word is also used when describing sharing an experience with somebody. The fellowship comes through giving and giving of yourself. It's doing for others. Why? Why? because you're motivated by love. Love should be the motivator of everything we do. Motivated by love. Fellowship is the preeminently work of the Holy Spirit, making us all one in Jesus Christ and the Father. When we experience koinonia with the Father and the Son, we draw closer to each other in fellowship, and we enjoy this wonderful time. When we gather for Christian fellowship, it should be an intent to bless and to be blessed. That's what we want to do. I want to make sure that you're blessed. And it's okay if you bless me once in a while, too. That's okay. We want to bless each other. Why? Because we love each other, and we want to bless each other. Look at the things we, as a church, share. We share in the same Lord Jesus. We share in the same guide for life, the Bible. We share in the same love for God. We share in the same struggles of life and the same victories. We share in the same job of living for Him. And we share in the same joy of communicating the gospel message to those around us. That's near. That's something we really share, and we can talk to each other about that. You know, we just, we pray for each other. We, we lift each other up. We talk to each other about our problems. We help each other out. You know, it's a great joy when we of like minds come together and share the trueness of fellowship. Remember the scripture? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20. There is strength, there is power, there is comfort, there is encouragement when we fellowship with each other because Jesus is there. Jesus is in the midst We're told not to forsake the gathering of the brethren. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some do, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And the day is in capital letters. What's that day? The day of Jesus Christ, the day he returns. We need to be in fellowship, not forsaking. Satan knows what happens when you come to fellowship. Your enemy has an idea and knows exactly what happens when you come to fellowship. Let me ask you a question. You're not feeling so good. You've had a rotten day. Things aren't going so well at the office or whatever. And stuff like that. What's the first thing you want to cut out? Bible study. First thing that so easily gets checked off your list is Bible study. Because Satan knows that's the exact place you're supposed to be. He knows that if you go there, you'll be encouraged. You'll feel better about yourself. You may even get healed. You, who knows what's going to happen? But no, because we have this flesh that we carry around, you know, woe is me, I'm going to stay home and have my pity party. I'm not going to go to fellowship today. They don't like me anyhow. Well, you just believe the lie. You just fell into Satan's lie, and he's (laughs) going, got another one. Let me see who can move on now. We need to push through. Remember what we talked about last week, pressing onward, pushing through? We need to press onward to the high calling of God through Christ Jesus. This one commentator had a really great analogy about fellowship. And we all like the barbecue. Man, we all love the barbecue. And I'm of the old school where, you know, you used to pour the coals in there and used to light them and used to sit there and watch them and they'd get white and they'd get all hot and neat and stuff like that. They were great. And as long as all those coals were together, they were nice and hot and toasty. But as soon as you start spreading around and one of those poor puppies jumped out of the grill, it was hot for a while. All of a sudden, boom, nothing. It wasn't next to the hot ones. It wasn't next to the rest of the grill. That's what fellowship does for us fellow says keeps us hot, keeps us excited about the Lord, keeps us on fire, so to speak. Maybe, just maybe, this is what Jesus was saying when he talked to the church of Laodicea. And he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. Then so, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Maybe that's what he was referring to. You know, there's a potential for great heat when we get together. There's a potential for great heat. And the heat could be looked at as fruit fruit of our lives. So that's why fellowship is so important to us. We become a flame. We become on fire, and and we glow like those coals glow when we're close together. There's power when the body gets together in fellowship. It's a joyous time to be a part of a thriving, believing fellowship of a church. What a wonderful experience we share in knowing Jesus Christ. What a wonderful experience. The third essential is the breaking of bread. The third essential is the breaking of bread. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and the breaking of bread. This newly formed church spent time breaking bread together. Now, their breaking bread was a calming experience and very important to their culture. And as most cultures have, whether you be Italian, Irish, German, a lot of things always took place where? Around the table, around the dinner table. And depending upon your culture, more things took place there than not. Okay, It was a very, very big time to break meal together and to eat together. Well, that's the same back here, but only back here you really ate together because you sat at a very small table, you took the bread, you broke it, and there was this big thing of sop, they called it, and you stuck your bread in there and you took a bite. And then you double dipped, and you took another bite, and you triple dipped and took another bite. Well, the guy across from you, they're doing the same thing. Everybody's got their hand in the old sop, and they're all dipping in there. You talk about being one, you talk about being one together, you were sharing everything right back then. Are
0: a sure hope. You've been listening to Pastor Dave on a sure hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition? Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you liked this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to assurehoperadio.com. There, you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that, too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope.